Can I ask you a, a personal question this morning? Did you come expecting God to do something in your heart and in your life? Or did you come with a desire to watch passively as he does something in somebody else's heart and life? Or did we come as spectators? Um, we're invited to come into his presence, asking him to work in our hearts and in our lives. And he does that through his spirit and through the word of God. And I want to invite you, if you haven't already, just to whisper a prayer to the Lord that he would do a work in your heart, in your life, and that you would have really quick obedience and submission to him. Um, because if it's like me, if it's not really quick, like two seconds, then I don't do it. Um, and maybe that's your case as well. We're going to open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2 verse 8 says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. I just want to stop right there. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the bulletin that I handed out this morning, or that was handed out this morning, there are two or three quotes about the Garden of Eden. There's a battle um, that has raged for a long time as to whether it was a true place, a real garden, or whether it was just some allegorical um, story about the presence of good and evil. There's a man that I quoted in the bulletin, and this is what he said. Is there an intelligent man or woman now in the world who believes in the Garden of Eden story? And I would have to lift my hand and say, I do. If you find any man who believes it, strike his forehead and you will hear an echo. Something is for rent. And his name is Robert Green Ingersoll. Intimidation. If we can't gain them some other way, let's just call them foolish and intimidate um, either those who are already in the faith, if that's possible, or those who are considering it, um, and we'll just call them foolish and ignorant. Intimidation. These days, they would just say, just follow the science. We've heard it before. I don't think that phrase is going to go away. Um, No. Followers of Jesus... Follow Jesus. We don't follow the science. Don't hear me say science is bad. Truthful science is a good thing to follow. But Jesus sometimes leads beyond silence. Excuse me, science. A virgin birth is beyond science, and we believe it. The Garden of Eden um, might be beyond science, according to Ingersoll. Uh, We believe it. By the way, Ingersoll died in 1899. He was known as the great agnostic. Agnostic is a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God or of anything beyond material phenomena. A person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God. Well, that's a convenient place to be, right on the fence. I'm not going to believe in God, but I certainly don't want to say he doesn't exist just in case he does. Well, you're already saying that you don't believe in God. He died in 1899. He was was popularized as a higher criticism of the Bible, which seeks to disprove ultimately what Scripture has to say. And I might add that when he died, Hebrews chapter 4, I believe verse 27 would have been true. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Um, But the battle for the Garden of Eden continues to those who deny the genuineness of the Garden of Eden, though we haven't seen it. 
to those who deny the genuineness of the Garden of Eden or those who are inclined to think of the Garden of Eden as a non-literal allegorical story that describes a battle between good and evil, Scripture speaks, and it speaks very loudly. And what I want to do is I want to use Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, and let that guide us to some other places in Scripture that speak of the Garden of Eden. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, chapter 2, verse 8 of Genesis. Genesis 2 is the first reference to the Garden of Eden, but it's not the only one. After having killed his brother, Genesis 4 speaks of Cain, Adam and Eve's son, who settled east of Eden. So it was a very real person, a very real place. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden, about 2,050 years. And I do about because it's going to be a 30-second thing, and I don't want to spend two or three hours searching out the time frame. But about 2,050 years after Eden... Uh, and we're able to date Abraham because, uh, because of, of when he was born and going backwards in the lineages. Um, he was Lot's uh, uncle. Um, Genesis 13 verse 10 says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plains of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. And so that was 2,050 years later. They're still talking about the Garden of the Lord. We're going to see that phrase used parallel with the Garden of Eden as well. 3,000, about 3,250 years after Eden. And we're able to date Isaiah's ministry very well because of his reference to the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah 51, farther into his ministry, says this, God will restore Zion, which can also be referred to as the city of David, the city of God, Jerusalem. Sometimes it refers to Judah in, in, in total. Uh, God will restore Zion like Eden, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her deserts like the garden of the Lord. And so Isaiah, 3,250 years later, is still referencing a very real garden of Eden. About 140, 150 years after that, Ezekiel had his ministry. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, we have described for us uh, the devil. And we're going to find that he was in Eden also. That's a unique thought all by itself. Uh, chapter 28, verse 11 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, and so the king of Tyre is likened unto Satan, not a very good place to be. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he continues to describe uh, Satan and refers to Eden as a very real place. The Garden of Eden is referenced, in Ezekiel, is referenced in Ezekiel 31 as well when God was describing Assyria's beauty and greatness to the then Pharaoh of Egypt, not the Pharaoh that Moses dealt with, but the Pharaoh at that particular time. This is what it says in that passage. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, very specific time frame, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to the multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon. The cedars in the garden of God, referring back to Eden, could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its, uh, its boughs. Neither were the plain trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it. They were in the garden of God. So we see time and time again 
the Garden of Eden being referenced as a very real place, and Ingrisol, though uh, he might seek to intimidate us, may knock on our heads, and they're not empty. We're filled with the Word of God, and we follow God and believe in the truth of His Word. Joel 2 speaks of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. It mentions the Garden of Eden. Luke 3 gives us Jesus' lineage through Joseph. And Joseph's lineage is important in that story because the lineage of, of Mary had a curse upon it. No one would reign on, on David's throne. And so Joseph's lineage is critical as well. The last four individuals mentioned were these, verse 38 of chapter 3 of Luke, the sons of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, indicating a literal Adam who would have walked in a very real, uh, in a very real garden with God. Revelation chapter 22 mentions the tree of life, which is found in the Garden of of Eden. And uh, I don't want to read that right now. We're going to read that in a little bit. Scripture identifies the Garden of Eden as a very real place, a garden that God planted, chapter 2, verse 8. Um, those are scriptures that speak directly to the garden. There are many others, like 1 Timothy chapter 2, that says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, which refer back to the activities that happened during creation. And I think we get the idea. Eden, the Garden of Eden, is, excuse me, was a very real place at a very real time in human history. Not only do we have that, we also have the physical location of God's garden. Uh, reference in chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, gives us a very specific geographical location because of the four rivers that are mentioned. And it says this in verse 10, A river flowed out of Eden to the water to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And the name of the first is Pishon, it's the, it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Uh, Bedlam and Onyx are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And what I find interesting is when Moses, who's attributed as the author of Genesis, when he writes this, he gives geographical locations that didn't exist at that particular time. Assyria wasn't a nation yet. The Cush uh, folks weren't uh, there yet, but in his time they would have been. But it gives four uh, very specific rivers. Um, I want you to look at a map, if you will, of today's geography. Uh, and it would place, uh, this is the Middle East, and I just wanted us to get that as a reference place. And then the next slide, it places Eden somewhere right around in here. You say, why, why not specifically right there? Um, because we have the four rivers that are mentioned. Well, over time, rivers can change their course. Um, have you ever been to the Steamboat Arabia Museum in downtown Kansas City? Uh, we've been there. Uh, the Missouri River changed its course, and so some brothers uh, decided they wanted to look for a steamboat that had, been, that had been sunken. They dug up a farmer's field. They found it. And the point is this, that rivers can change their course over time, and perhaps these four rivers, or likely these four rivers, have changed their course as well. And then you take into account a flood that covers the entire earth, and how much more are the rivers and their locations going to be affected by that as well. So we have references to Scripture of Eden being a very real place, we have also the geographical location um, taken into account. Um, scripture references throughout the Bible, uh, Eden, along with a specific location, speaks to a very, very literal Garden of Eden. Look at verse 8. The Lord God planted, or He established, or He pitched a garden in Eden, in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. 
Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God plants a garden. God planted, established, he pitched a garden in the east, and that's where he placed Adam. Verse 9 might be a summation of creation in general or specifically day 3, or more likely um, in this Garden of Eden in the east, God made specific trees spring up, describing them as pleasant to the sight and good for food. Um, We're entering fall, and already I've seen some of the blazing autumn trees that change their leaf colors, and they're just a gorgeous orange and red. Have you seen those already? And we're going to see the leaves change from a green to, to a yellow as well. They're pleasant to the sight. And the trees that God planted in the Garden of Eden were pleasant to the sight, but it wasn't just that they were pleasant to the sight. They were also good, uh, they were also good for food. That's the handiwork of God. That's what he's able to do. Um, not just pleasant to the sight, but also good for food. At returning glory in the fall, Gary and Roxanne often tell the teens that are, that are there to go pick an apple from the tree that they want. And in, every time, every one of the kids goes over and picks an apple and eats the apple. What God makes is pleasant to the sight as well as good for food. God's creation was good for food. And we remember back in chapter 1, verse 29, where where God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed and its fruit. You You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And then he speaks of two very specific trees that are in that garden, God's garden, the Garden of Eden. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, verse 9. Early mention of these trees and a continual mention of them and the effects of the trees indicates the importance of these, of these particular trees. Were they real trees? Yes, They were real trees, the Garden of Eden. They eat from the trees. It was pleasant to look at. They were good for food as well. Were they symbolic as well? Likely so. Think about what we do every time we observe the Lord's Supper. We eat the bread. We drink the juice. They don't become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They're symbolic of what He did, a very real event. And so likely that was the case with the tree also of the knowledge of good and evil. Will be the case also with the tree of life. Um, We read in the passage from Ezekiel 28 that the real king of Tyre was likened unto Satan, something that was symbolic as well. Um, Was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, uh, good and evil, an apple tree? No. And that's how much the the pictures that we see and the movies that we watch can influence what we believe. We got to be careful there. I mean, I've lived in Brazil, and if it were an apple tree, that'd be fine. But I'd much rather have it be a mango tree or a cashew tree. There's all kinds, but it was a tree that was good to good to look at as well as good for food. Can they be real trees and symbolic at the same time? Of course they can. We read in passages like Ezekiel 28, that was uh, what was written to the king of Tyre, Satan being uh, represented um, through this king of Tyre. Was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay, we've already been there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want to say much about that tree um, because Joshua is going to deal with that in man's fall on the 22nd. He's going to take the message of Genesis chapter 3 and speak about man's fall. I do want to mention a thing or two about the tree of life, though. The tree of life, I'm quoting, in Eden must have had some role to play in maintaining the life of Adam and Eve. Adam would live forever, even in his fallen condition, if he had eaten from the tree of life after his sin. 
God placed a sword-wielding cherub, an angel, at the entrance to the garden specifically to guard the way of the tree of life. Verse 24 of that same chapter. It seems access to the tree of life would have prolonged Adam's physical life, indefinitely dooming him to an eternity in a cursed world. And so God pushed them out of the garden, and then he guarded the tree of life. Now here's what's interesting. If he guarded the tree of life so they wouldn't have eaten from that, could he not have guarded the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so they wouldn't have eaten of that also? And yes, he could have. In the most very real sense, the free will that Adam and Eve had, and though God existed beyond time and knew what the response would be, and Jesus was crucified even before the foundations of the earth, he knew what they would do, but they chose to disobey the Lord. He allowed that disobedience here. He protected them from living this life in disobedience and sin by guarding the tree of life as well. God speaking to himself in chapter 3, verse 24, said, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherub and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. We find the tree of life mentioned in Revelation chapter 22. It's, it's mentioned in the very beginning of God's word. It's mentioned in the very end of God's word as well. John wrote this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. He's in heaven with this vision. Bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street, street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, Genesis chapter 9, verse 2, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The, the leaves of the trees were for the healings of the nations. So now in heaven, in glory, what John sees is this river with the tree of life on both sides of the river. A tree that's capable of producing 12 different kinds of fruits, each one a month and is for the healings of the nation. It's a very real garden. It's a very real tree. And God protected Adam from eating from the tree of, the, uh, uh, the tree of life. With these trees, God gives a very specific warning. Look at verse 15, Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. That was his first job task. The Lord God commanded, or he laid a charge, or he ordered the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In the midst of the task God gave Adam, he gave him one parameter, not ten, like they would get later on in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5. There was one parameter. The parameter was, eat anything you want of any tree you want in this garden of mine that I've planted, but don't eat from these trees. Don't eat from this tree, rather. One parameter. The word is singular. I don't think Eve was present yet. Um, he said, "He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. May surely eat one word. Uh, it's, it's two for us. Surely eat, certainly eat. You may consume, devour anything that you want. And then he gives the command, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. That is uh, three words, um, shall surely die. For us it's one word, and this is what it means. You certainly will die. If you eat from this tree, then the Lord God, verse 18 said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him fit for him. Uh, I want to deal with that next week. Lord willing um, will be a message on Adam's helper. 
Verse 19 says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the, of the heavens, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to all the birds of the heaven, every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper for him. Adam's first stated task was to work and to keep the garden. I'm planting a garden. Adam, your task is to care for this garden. He didn't work because of sin. We sweat for our work because of sin. He had responsibility and work. Uh, even prior to that, God created man to fulfill his work purpose, his work purpose for us, to be fulfilled by discovering what God desires for us, and then to set our minds on doing what, the, what it is that he wants us to do. Adam was to fill the earth and subdue it from chapter 1, having dominion over all things. And part of that task was to name all of the creatures that God had created. Uh, verse 19 is a summation of the six days of creation, not a contrast to. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, all the birds of the heaven, and every beast of the field. Likely, he wouldn't have named every type of dog. This is a Chihuahua. This is a Dalmatian. This is a. He would have named dogs. He wouldn't have named every specific bird. This is a cardinal. This is a red bird. This is a robin. He would have named birds and the different kinds. More on that when we get to Noah's Ark and the and the animals that God brought to Noah two by two and uh, the numbers of those as well. Um, there are some unique names though when you consider God's creation. I mean, I can understand, first of all, what, what was Adam speaking? He wasn't speaking English, okay? Well, he wouldn't have been speaking Hebrew either because they didn't exist yet, so I'm not really sure what kind of a language he was speaking. But I get hummingbird. When a hummingbird flies by, you kind of hear its wings and they kind of hum. What I don't get is platypus. How did, how did he get that one? And, and, yet, and, yet, and yet Adam had this non-sin-affected mind at that time, probably didn't, probably didn't weigh out, well, could I call it this or should I call it this? Probably God brought them before him and he named them. And he brought another before him and he named them. So if you ever wonder, why is this called what it's called, just go back to Adam and say, Adam, what were you thinking? And that's what we would get. God brought the living creatures. He had created a man. He had named each one until the job was finished. Maybe each species, maybe each species was paraded by Adam, perhaps both male and female. And Adam would remember, I don't have a companion. They have a companion, but I don't have a companion. Um, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And I don't know that he was looking through the animal kingdom for a helper fit for him, but it was just a reminder. They have each other, male, female, he created them, but I don't have anybody. God brought the living creatures and he named them. Maybe each species was paraded before him and he thought in that way. In verse 18, we find the first not good of God's declaration. In creation, he said, it is good, 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 it is very good. And now he says, this is not good. It isn't that God's creation was inferior it wasn't that he didn't know what he was doing, that it wasn't good. It meant he saw Adam needed a helper fit for him. God had one more thing to create, and he would create it from Adam's own body. God was and continues to be aware of Adam's needs and the needs of Adam's descendants. That means God is relational, that he cares about man whom he, whom he had breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
And he said, I will make him a helper fit for him. And Adam caused, if you will, a heavenly anesthesia to fall. Excuse me. God caused a heavenly anesthesia to fall upon Adam. He took one of his ribs. He formed woman from that. More on that next week. And he brought her to Adam. And just as Adam had labeled hummingbird and bear and moose, now he says woman. Because she was taken from man, I'm going to call her woman. And that's what stuck with her as well. He continues, God continues to be aware of our needs even though the world seeks to substitute, continually substitute uh, something that doesn't fulfill man's needs, God is absolutely aware of our needs. Um, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we bow before you. We recognize you as creator. We recognize you as the one who planted the garden. We recognize you as the one who placed Adam in the garden to care for the things that you had created. Have dominion and subdue. And we recognize that you're relational and that you care for Adam. Everything you did was good, good, good. And now you're saying because he doesn't have a companion, it's not good. And we're going to read in Scripture that you created a companion for him to fulfill, to walk with, not to take your place but to walk and journey through life with, and we thank you that you care for us. Father, we thank you that you created and walked in Eden, that you're mindful of us, and that you draw us to yourself, that one day we may eat in a sinless position because of the blood of Jesus Christ from the tree of life and live in eternity, absolutely sinless, with our Savior face to face. We pray that in Jesus' name.